0: You're listening to the Heroes Podcast Network.
1: Hey friends, this is Cam, one of the hosts of the Gamer Heroes Podcast. We really hope you're enjoying the show you're listening to right now, and if you are, please consider becoming a patron of the Heroes Podcast Network at patreon.com slash heroespodcasts. Your support would genuinely mean the world to us, and would allow us to cover hosting costs for the website, get new equipment and software, and even make it out to different conventions and events to meet you, our loyal listeners. All Patreon tiers will get you access to the Patron Lounge and Slack, which will allow you to chat and interact with your favorite HPN hosts. On behalf of everyone here at HPN, thank you all so much for your continued support. We really couldn't
0: do any of this without you.
2: everybody. Derek here, uh, old host of Gamer Heroes and host over at Screen Heroes, a sibling podcast here on the Heroes Podcast Network. I have a special episode for you today. Um, We were able to sit down with and interview Daniel Fox, who is the man behind the Zweihander RPG. It's a fantasy, uh, grim fantasy, dark fantasy RPG that's out there now. Um, You can get the cool core rule set, and there's some additional books coming out here later this year in September and December. So this was really cool. He's in Kansas City, uh, so he's local to where we are, which is great. And I brought on my buddy John Hall to do the interview because he is our resident expert in tabletop gaming. I hope that you like the interview, so let's do it.
0: So we're talking with Daniel D. Fox, uh, the designer of the Zweihender Grim and Perilous RPG. Zweihander won the Any Gold for Best Game in Product of the Year, Gen Con 2018, it was featured on Forbes.com, and ranked one of the best-selling fantasy tabletop role-playing games at DriveThruRPG, and has moved over 90,000 copies worldwide. And those numbers may be up from when we... Just when a I'm, tick. Just <laughs> a tick. So I'll let him unpack that. But So this game, it's a bloodier uh, a grittier version of the classic tabletop role playing game, and it attempts to break a lot of the tropes that are usually associated with genre while also paying homage to its roots. So, uh, Daniel, you were able to successfully kickstart the game and parlay that into a role as executive creative director of games for Andrews McNeil Universal. And we are going to try to unpack as much of that as we can. But first, congratulations on the thank game. Thank you. I appreciate that. And all the success. And thanks for taking the time with us today. It's been a pleasure to kind of get to know you over the last couple of days, or read about you and talk to you. So, tell us about how this game happened. How did it, how did it start? Great, great. First off, thank you, uh, Derek and
1: John, for having me. This is a this is a cool opportunity. I really appreciate the you know the time to talk about kind of my experience. I think that. Oftentimes, uh, with tabletop role play game designers, uh, they kind of don't quite have the opportunity with some channels to talk about kind of their successes and their failures. Because I think we just spoke like yesterday, failure <laughs> is as important as success. So I think it's it's important <laughs> to talk about kind of like how where things start, right? Right, right. So, you know, I, I, I look back. Um, so I started playing Dungeons and Dragons when I was 11. And I'm going way back here. So I'm 42, just for our listeners. Um, so I started playing, when I was around 11, 11 and a half. And um, as time went on, you know, I've kind of been gaming with the same people for years at this point. Um, You know, we grew up in Ogro, Missouri, um, moved to Kansas City in our 20s, and most of us are still in connection. We still game every Wednesday. Today's Wednesday. We're gaming tonight in my basement, Uh, you know, but now, you know, we've got cool tables and don't have to have mom make us brownies, Um, make our own brownies. Uh, But no, the the game kind of started, you know, uh, about six or seven years ago. Um, So I had been... I've been house ruling Dungeons & Dragons for years, um, and I just couldn't get it to work with the type of game I wanted to run. Uh, the games that I run are kind of heavy on the politics, heavy on the gray morality scale. We shy away from the good versus evil stuff. There's not really a lot of monsters in our game. It's mostly like people kind of fighting, getting into the human condition, like a world that changes the people, not the people changing the world. So it's not like higher relics. So after fiddling with Dungeons & Dragons through all of its various iterations, and it was, this was during the Dungeons & Dragons 4th edition, uh, I got my hands on Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. I was like, gosh, this is a really cool system. It's a skill-based system. It answers for a lot of the problems that I've been trying to solve for years. I was introduced to it from Phil Kilgore at Tabletop Roleplaying Games. And I was like, you know, I love this game, but I can't use the world because I'm my own campaign world. I just don't I don't like the campaign world. Oh, and there's a lot of things about this that I would probably change in its own kind of subtle ways to make my own. So that kind of started this exploration um, around our game table to make what was ostensibly called Core Hammer. It was literally a direct retro clone at first of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, but we stripped out the world. But as time went on, we're like, wait a second, this, actually, this thing actually has legs. This is doing something that other role playing games aren't doing right now. We looked at RuneQuest, we looked at other D100 games and other Dark Fantasy games, we're like, well, oh, gosh, these are really interesting, but there's things about them that, that, that they just don't cover off on. So, we continued development and wrote, and wrote, and wrote, and wrote, and wrote, um, and literally that whole process started on Thanksgiving in 2012 uh, in uh, Minnesota, of all places, in a snowstorm. <laughs> I remember because it was a Thanksgiving day, and I was up there uh, with a friend, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to try writing an RPG. So years pass, and I've got this thing, this this thing that I'm like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually maybe publish this. I don't know. And we'll see what happens. Um, so that's how Zweihinder started. Uh, which eventually led to the Kickstarter.
0: Yeah, so one of the things I think is interesting about the game, we'll get into some of the mechanics a little bit later, but one of the things I found interesting in some of our conversations, and some of the stuff I've read online about it, is the fact that it is world agnostic. So that seems to be one of your design, like one of the tenets of what you wanted to try to accomplish with this, was to make it modular in that respect. Is that right? Like- that's, that's right. And I think that
1: when we, as an example, like when we look at Dungeons & Dragons, like there are worlds that are sort of implied um, but Dungeons & Dragons is built from a world-agnostic standpoint. The difference is, is that Dungeons & Dragons accommodates themes, high heroics. Uh, granted, there are alternative rules to make it more gritty, more dark, more violent, if you will. But they're not intrinsic to the system. When I look at Zweihander, I look at it in the same way. Um, how can Zweihander, as opposed to high heroics, is low fantasy, more real and grounded and gritty. Like think, like street-level crime drama stuff like Daredevil as opposed to the Avengers. Like, these are two very different, yeah. although they're the same genre, but they're very different in their themes. So Zweihunder, you know, is the same way. It says, okay, we're not, you know, we're operating based off of themes and not world. Our themes are humanocentricism as a core tenant, fractured fairy tales, low fantasy, um, and, 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 a, and a number of other themes that are kind of, like, intrinsic to it. But what we want to do is make sure we shat away from the more... Themes of dark fantasy in general, which is oftentimes very kind of ma- ma- uh, masculine, uh, very centered around like powerful male heroes. And we knew that wasn't the type of game that we ran around our game table. Right. So when Zvyander was developed, we're like, one of the core tenants has to ensure that we are showing characters within the book, within the works, within the artwork uh, that portray a number of people across a broad spectrum. To show them in these same roles, but to but but you know once again to move away from you know having a world tied into Zvayender. Right. I mean, there are things you could certainly pick out of and say, yeah, that that feels a little bit like Warhammer, or that yeah, that feels a little bit like D anD. d There's there's certainly little kind of like breadcrumbs, I guess you could say. Um, but most of those breadcrumbs are there not necessarily to lead you toward a path, down a path toward a specific story,
0: but to inspire you to kind of create your own things around these themes. Sure, sure. I was going to comment on the artwork too for a second, but I think. Probably one of the striking things about it. And I know we can talk about how. The game, so let me back up for a second. You have this rule set, you've mm-hmm. got this game, you've decided you, pu- you want to publish something. Where do you take that? And we'll talk about the art. Oh my gosh.
1: Okay. So uh, this is an interest. This, this to me is like where I kind of put my business hat on. So, you know, for the listeners, and I mean, John and Derek already knew this, but I spent, you know, 15 years at this point in advertising. Um, I started out as a copywriter and graphic designer, worked my way up toward business development. Um, I've been a coder. Uh I've done all kinds of stuff. I've worn many hats over the years. Um, uh, but you know, I was kind of I'm you know in my 40s at the uh, my late thirties in the peak of my career where I'm like uh, you know working in client engagement, working on business development strategies. And I didn't know anything about publishing. Not a damn thing. <laughs> the the only thing the only thing I knew about RPGs was that I buy them. But I could also kind of understand like kind of following icv2.com as well as listening to industry chatter, kind of how things kind of worked. So I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to try my hand on this. I'm going to see if it's real legit because my intention, you know, when I first developed this was not necessarily to bring it to publication, but to actually print a copy off at Office D or Office Max for us to have around the game table to play our own yeah. game. But, um, you know, my play testers, they kept goading me and they're like, Hey, you got to produce this, you got to print it, you got to do something with it. So uh, fortunately, uh, during that time, you know, when I was like, "All right, maybe this is real." Kickstarter had been its two years of two years of infancy, and I was like, "Well, if I'm going to raise money for artwork and a cover and print, I'm going to go to Kickstarter." So I started crunching the numbers. I'm like, "Okay, well, if I do a print-on-demand version of Lulu.com, which we'll talk about in a moment, it's going to cost this much. Oh, and I need to pay my artist in Serbia this much money. Oh, and I need to pay for layout and editing, all this stuff." So I was like, okay, my, my initial ask, I think, was $7,000 on Kickstarter. So it blows through it in, like, four hours. It's like, boom, like, $7,000 out of thin air, and I'm like, holy shit. Like, this is like, a, <laughs> people were paying attention, because I had been talking about this game, you know, in passing on RPG.net, um, on Strike to Stun, which is like the Warhammer Fantasy roleplay kind of Nexus at the time. And I didn't realize there was so much attention around it, although I had kind of put some light marketing behind it, meaning I kind of jumped up a lot of funny memes on Facebook. Um, I never really thought of them to start to attract a following on Facebook until I made my, my Facebook official page. So $7,000 happens in the first four hours, or seven
0: hours, rather. Like,
1: it's going to happen. Yeah, it's going to happen. So I'm like, oh, crap. So now, like, I'm on the hook. Uh, <laughs> I'm to <gotta laughs> do something. I was like, maybe we'll do 100 books. And, like, it turns into, you know, 1,900 books by the end of Kickstarter. We raised somewhere around $61,000 uh, at the end of the campaign. We get a ton of new artwork uh, in there. We are able to pay for another editor to come on board because we hunted somebody to kind of double check our work. Um, and we ended up raising after that around $120,000 split between kit and CrowdOx and other pre-sales. Oh, wow. So suddenly this kind of like funny LLC that I started is basically a, a pass-through for taxes – uh, for for buying books and research material turned into like a real business. So I'm sitting on top of you know, gosh, almost two hundred thousand dollars. I'm like, okay, well, this is happening. So so that and that kind of starts this process to understand what it means to work with people across the world. So Zvaiender was not developed strictly in a vacuum in my basement. Um, it was developed the play testers sure. But there are a lot of people who came to the table to kind of bring it to life. So the first is Tanner Yee, or Tanner Ya. He lives in Florida. Um, He's one of the writing contributors who wrote a lot of the kind of fluff stuff in the background. There's Matthew Pook, or as he's known in the industry as Pookie. He's our proofer and editor. He lives in the UK. Our cover artist, Yusi Adaharo, lives overseas in Europe. He did the cover artwork. Our... Our artist, Dan Mandich, who I got connected randomly uh, online, he's from Serbia. And our layout editor, Milena Lakašević is also from Serbia. They actually live near one another. So between all of us, we cobbled together. And when I say cobbled, I mean literally cobbled. uh, Because we didn't really know anything about the industry or anything about this. So we kind of took our first stab at Zweihander. And it turned out to be a 660-odd page book uh, that we printed uh, we intended to print initially at lulu.com and do some print-on-demand, but as we got our first proofs back, it was like, oh, wait, this is bigger. Yeah, we can't we can't do print-on-demand for this because we got the copies from Lulu. And for those who are listening who know anything about print materials, I mean, even if you're a gamer, like, Lulu, you print on Lulu paper. Like, it's 60-pound paper. Everything bleeds through. It's just a shit copy. It's not even smith-bound. There's no sewing into the plank. I didn't know any of this during the time. Um, you know so I get that copy and I show it to the playtesters I'm like guys what do you think about this and like it's really cool that we have a book but you can't release this to the public (laughs) and I'm like oh my gosh you're right so I have to go back and recalculate all my numbers all my numbers because I had assumed uh, you know during Kickstarter I'd raise enough money for shipping and printing and all that good stuff so this this turns into this big mess uh, on the back end which delayed the book by about four months but what we ended up with at the very end of it, we got connected to Larry Elmore's printer, who's here in Kansas City, coincidentally. Um, got guy named Bob Odley with Covington Group, and he kind of said, "Okay, I know this world." He kind of is the captain of the ship. He says, "Let's write, let's write the ship. Let's let's go down the right path for printing." So he taught us about like print quality, material covers, planks, ribbons, et cetera, et cetera. And by the end of it, we ended up shipping out um, a collector's edition quality of a book. It was soft touch cover, like what you're seeing here, seventy pound paper, uh, spine sewing flat uh, spine instead of or flat spine instead of rounded spine. Um, Very very high quality, comparable comparable to to any collector's edition in the industry, and rivaling the standard stuff you pull off a shelf for Dungeons and Dragons. So we knew
0: that like the the quality of material is going to be something that we really honed in on in the future. I was going to say, one of the things, I mean, I just commented, by the way, for those listening, if you have a chance to just go online, number one, and take a look at the cover art, which there's plenty of uh, websites available for you to see. Through RPG has mm-hmm. it, and, and the a way uh, is that what it is? Yeah, that's um, right. GrimandPerilous.com has it. Uh, take a look at this artwork, it's beautiful, but I would say, just looking at this book today, um, I mean, it's substantial. I mean, 600 pages. It's heavy. Yeah. It, it, it lives up to its name. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, it really does. But um, you made a decision. And I believe we talked about this. You made a decision to go ahead and, and have it be one complete tome, mm-hmm. um, which is a little bit unique in the sense that a lot of the newer RPGs that have been coming out have you know a separate player's guide and a separate DM guide, and it's very compartmentalized. But you went forward and said, you know what? We're going to deliver on that promise and do it all. So you want to talk about that a little bit, too? Yeah. I'm sure it, that
1: was... Big decision, right? It was, and it's, a, it's an interesting observation, too, because I think that, and this is just me speaking as somebody who buys RPGs, um, RPG prices have not really changed since the 80s and 90s. They just haven't. Uh, the do- American dollar spends a lot worse, but the pricing the prices of books have not changed that much. So when I looked at the market, I was like, okay, if I'm going to make an entrance to market, and this is me putting on my business hat, I was like, I need to do something that's unique. And part of that unique approach is making a tome that, although may seem unapproachable because it's one big omnibus, um, was price conscientious, particularly because we're printing in black and white at the time. The version you have in front of you is actually in black and white sepia. We'll talk about that later, the, the new revised version. But the original version was in black and white. We knew we'd evoke an old school style. So we said, okay, Zweihander is a name that's fitting because it requires two hands to pick up. It's a big book, right? Yeah, it's a big book. Um, But... When I started doing the math, here's the, here's the reality. So the, the Dungeon Master's Guide, the Player's Handbook, and the Monster <laughs> Manual. So you can go to Amazon, you can add all the pages up, you can add up all the, the numbers. It's basically going to cost you retail price around $95 to get everything, all in one, and it's less pages in Zweihander. So I was like, well, gosh, maybe we can do Zweihander in one book. Because we did contemplate splitting it up at one point, uh, specifically for Kickstarter. But it just, it just something in my mind was telling me like, you know, this is kind of a funny, cute thing. It's called Zweihander. It weighs five and a half pounds. <laughs> a Zweihander sword is two handed. Like we got to go like one big book. So we made the decision to do that, and and it's kind of a, I have kind of a love hate relationship with it now, <laughs> uh, in <laughs> retrospect. But but, but there, there's things to talk about regarding that as well. But I mean, nonetheless, um, you know, people really thought it was cool, and suddenly after that, you start seeing a flood. Of other RPGs doing all in one books um, right after that. DCC is a good example of it. So it, it just felt like the right thing to do because I, you know, the bottom line is a lot of people have a lot of money to spend. And asking for 60 bucks for a 269 page book uh, is an easier ask than saying pay $99 for everything. Oh, and it's three books. Oh, and you have to haul it all around. But ultimately, at the end of the day, Zweihunder weighs less than all three books for Dungeons & Dragons sure. it has more pages it costs less and in my mind it has more value And even though we're not necessarily trying to compete against D&D D&D is on the other end of the spectrum from Zweihunder to go right. back to what we spoke about before you have dark fantasy and high fantasy Ingram and Zweihunder is on the other end of the spectrum
0: just a quick—I mean, just for people that are listening to—just a quick kind of leaf through the book. I mean, this is 600 plus, 660 plus pages, and there isn't any fluff. I mean, you can buy books today mm-hmm. that have 30 pages of rules and 250 pages of story and fluff. This doesn't have that. I mean, these, this is chock full of important stuff to get the game, you know, working. And I think the decision to, you know, set aside a campaign setting, so to speak. Mm-hmm adds to the, you know, richness of what you have in the book. So, I mean, I'm paying you a bit of a compliment, but I, for those that are going to get this book, I mean, you're going to be really in for a treat when you see this because there's just a lot of stuff in here. It's really good.
1: Yeah, we, we aimed for options. And even though you don't, you know, the, the, the requirements to play as a boy hander don't be dismayed by the sides. It only requires about 8 to 10 pages of knowledge to get started. Right. The rest of it is mostly geared toward things that happen throughout the game from combat to chase scenes to social intrigue to wilderness travel. Um, and a full bestiary and a full game master's guide and a full player's guide yeah. so um, you know y- y- you're right um, we, we, because we made the conscious choice to remove the fluff of a world from it give gave us a lot more room to breathe and talk about what Grown Perilous Gaming means and, and to some degree I mean I kind of wax poetic and it, a lot, I get a lot of feedback on the book and, and, it's a, and once again people have a love hate relationship with it either they absolutely adore the fact that it's large and has a lot of stuff in it or they hate the fact that I, that I'm Long winded. Um, <laughs> and, and, and well, I'm happy you're long winded. Yeah. So. <laughs> and, I, and I'm, I'm lo- apparently I'm long, I had never written before. No. That's the first thing I ever wrote. I never wrote a college paper. Um, so <laughs> I write emails. I uh, wrote emails for a living for a while. But, you know, like I, you know, I had never written before. So I just kind of like said, okay, world, here's the way that I think and I write and though I run games. This is a reflection of the things that we've done around our game table for almost two and
0: a half decades. Tell me what you think and um, people seem seem to like it. So, on that note then, what really sets us apart? Let's talk a little bit about the mechanics. So because I know it has a D kind of the D-100 system, and mm-hmm. we we'll talk a little bit about that. I also think one of the things I'd really love for you to explore, um, mm-hmm. we had talked about the professions, yeah, and and sort of the uniqueness of each one of those professions and those characters, which gives it a more living kind of feeling. Mm-hmm. So, I'm not trying to lead you, but what tell us about it. Set it aside. What well, sets it apart? Well, let's talk about professions first. It's, it's an
1: important call out. So. Um, you know, because it is about human eccentricism and about kind of the common person struggling against the world around them. Uh, the decision was made early on to avoid the traditional fantasy tropes of fighter magic is your cleric rogue. Those things have been done by a hundred other books and and they did other books do it very, very well. Um, I want to do something unique and different, but I also had to do it very, very well. So we made the decision to embrace the idea, like, how can we take Renaissance, professions from our own world um, and turn them into playable characters. Now, there's 72 basic professions in the game. There's 40, I believe, 44 expert professions and those run the gamut from laborer to rat catcher to sellsword to black magister. I mean, they run the whole spectrum like from from your your traditional dark fantasy tropes to the kind of like in the muck and mud and piss and shit um, everyday people. So the big question was, how do you make playing a laborer or a peasant intriguing when you have all these other cool things they could do well we knew that the answer to that was by using a skill system because every profession has an equal distribution of skills although the skills are different they're equal distribution across the professions we knew that we could empower all of them to be useful around the game table The second thing we wanted to do is, because if you look at Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, they have a career-based system, which is intriguing in itself, and certainly an inspiration for Zweihander. But one thing Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay didn't do a good job of is equal distribution of skills and giving those careers something different that they do distinctly better than anybody else. If you look at Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, first edition, second edition, third edition, fourth edition, there's nothing really unique about each of those professions save for how they advance. In Zweihander... It's different. Each profession has one unique trait that only they get. Only they can do it. Nobody else in the game can do it unless they adopt that profession later on in their in their career. So as an example, when we look at the, the laborer. The laborer gets a plus three to the peril threshold. And in, 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 in Zwei peril threshold, withstanding the rigors of stress, fear, and terror, and fatigue, is incredibly important. Having a plus three to that value is a game-changer. We know the laborers are cut. Co- it's called backbreaking labor, I believe, and they can kind of accommodate, you know, like more fatigue over time. So we felt that it was a good thing to do for them. Or maybe flipping them with the, the peasant, but nonetheless, no, from,
0: the theme, from a theme perspective, sure, they're working hard. They condition themselves to be able to do more. That's right. Yeah. An okay.
1: And same thing with the militiamen. Militiamen, like in the game as lie hunter, look like these barefooted, like swords and spears thrust in the hands of you know scared peasants. <laughs> But one thing that militiamen are really good at is guerrilla warfare. They don't they don't provoke opportunity attacks when they move. So they have each of these professions have one unique thing they can do. Uh, the smuggler's an example gets a trait called Hans Shot First, uh, which means at the beginning of combat, they strike automatically. They go first. They get three AP to go at the very beginning of combat. And and you'll find in Zvoihunder, because you know Dark Fantasy can be a big grim and dour, the book is just riddled with pop culture references. Uh, not only just because the artist Dan Mandich from Serbia is, is he's obsessed with American culture, because I'm a child of pop culture. So I've put a lot of that kind of like that that referential stuff into it and there's a lot of kind of fun end jokes in the book. And a lot of RPGs don't do that. They don't they don't they don't I mean, there's levity in the book. Like you can't it can't just be dark and grim and terrible. Like who would want to play in that game or that world? Like right. where cynicism and nihilism rules. Like no, what we're saying is these professions, these characters, these These things that you're playing are unique and different and stand out from other rat catchers, from other jailers, from other laborers, and other jesters and and such. You are unique, and that unique thing about you is reflected through your professional trait, through your set of skills, uh, through some of the funny kind of stuff that you find riddled in the book, and the use of fate points, which are your get-out-of-jail-free cards that only player characters get.
0: Sure. So then my question, or not a question, but more of maybe a little bit of observation or whatever is that in the decision to move away from some of the, the standard high fantasy tropes of mm-hmm. wizards and fighters and that type mm-hmm. of thing, which um, I think is was, was great, uh, you, you kind of set up a situation where people can play roles, and I'm kind of flipping through the book here and I look at this, but people can play these particular professions um, that... And you can create stories that would give them an opportunity to kind of work through some real-life type of things as well. I mean, yeah. where... I mean, you can obviously assign some value to going on a quest and being a dragon, you know, mm-hmm. in a D&D type of game or any of these type of fantasy games. If you're dealing with, like, you know, the the, 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 the boot of the world pushing down on you, right. right, which is kind of like one of the themes moving through this story, mm-hmm. it's probably a little bit easier to kind of, you know, put yourself in that place if you are like, hey, I'm... I'm a back-breaking laborer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know we can all relate to that to some degree, right? Like that's right. I'm, I'm having to do manual labor just to survive the world type of thing. It'd be kind of interesting. I mean, how does that play out with your
1: groups? That's a good question. So you know, you, and this kind of goes back to the, the mechanics of the hinder So are you familiar with Joseph Campbell? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Joseph Campbell co- talks about like the, the character arc, the story, the traditional archetypical hero. Has has three arcs, three three parts of the story. And if you look at Shakespeare and other other works, are written in three parts. I took that in Zvolyander and said there are three tiers of play. You start out in basic tier. That's who you were right now. So I'm a run of the mill gutter snipe. I'm a chimney sweep, or a person who's pretending to be a chimney sweep, but is probably just a you know a cut purse of sort or a second story man. Um, And that's how your game starts. You were you've been this profession up to this point, but something has turned you in a different direction some twist of fate some maybe some willingness of a god or maybe just the world around you something has changed your fate and you're going a different direction so as you you start out actually mostly complete having completed your first profession when you first start the game then the intermediate tier starts based on the story leads up to that point you and the game master sit down and say okay what's the next natural progression what next profession can i adopt so multi-classing in a sense so the story has led you toward a certain direction. Like, you may have started out as a, a steady watchman, but now you've spent your time as a, as a mercenary for hire, so you make the decision to say, okay, the story has gotten me toward becoming a sellsword, so you adopt the sellsword profession. So intermediate tier happens. It's the second arc of the story. Then you have the final arc. So even though you may have started out small, you grow large over time and adopt that final third profession in advanced tier. And we see this in our games. We start out kind of at street level gritty crime drama stuff and eventually it turns into something big and crazy and fantastic. But the fantasy, the brush strokes of fantasy are very thin at first. And, and as any good story is told, you tell it very slowly, let it unravel. Zweihinder ass tries to teach game masters to do the same thing. Let start out small and slowly get into something big as opposed to being like, oh you're a fighter right now, you're gonna fight a bunch of orcs and kill and kill a dragon in two levels. Like it's not necessarily about like Plunder and being a murder home. but it's really about surviving the world and seeing how the world changes your character, and that's reflected through the game mechanics. Your characters literally change and adopt new professions over time okay. based on those those strokes of the story. That's how we run games around my game table. We tried to do it with D anD D, was impossible. We tried to do it with Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, didn't quite fit. And that's where Zepoihander really kind of filled that gap for us. And I, and based on what we hear, it's clearly a gap in the market. I mean, sales
0: predicate that. I was going to ask you about that. So why why an RPG now? Why a tabletop RPG now? I think we talked a little bit about this at lunch, but let's explore that. There is a gap in the market. That's right. There's a mid-level right now. Go mm-hmm. ahead and let us know about that.
1: Yeah, so so game stores, if, if you look at the... So there's about 4,100 brick-and-mortar game stores in the United States. Uh, of those, there's about 1,000 or so top performers. Uh, these are the people who have distribution into a GTS, Alliance, Diamond... Southern Hobby, the, the big distributors. And what they'll tell you is that RPGs are separated into three categories. Uh, they're separated into the Tier 1, which is Paizo, Pathfinder, Dungeons & Dragons. Tier 2, which is Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, Call of Cthulhu, Zawaii Hunter. And then up, then Tier 3, which is their games are either so utterly complex that they don't get shelf space or indie RPGs. So and it's the first thing to understand about the industry as a whole from the perspective of, of a game store owner. If you look at it at the macro scale at the from the perspective of like a company saying okay, RPGs are in the right time to do this now. 2018 uh, in 2018 uh you know, ICVB2 reported over, you know, 200 million dollars in revenue for RPGs. It's the fastest fastest growing uh, category for Hobby games, meaning collectible card games, board games, plushies, bullshit like that, including tabletop RPGs. Tabletop RPGs is the bottom half of the sandwich, and collectible card games are the top of the sandwich. And the the distinction between the two is massive in in hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, I think the entire hobby industry is about $2.65 billion. It's, It's huge. So RPGs are a part of that. RPGs, particularly now, it's there's a very little barrier to entry to get in if you want to be a publisher. You can use Kickstarter, you can use print on demand DriveThruRPG, do all these different things. But most importantly, and this is really due to Dungeons & Dragons, to their credit. So 5th edition comes out, and they made a marketing decision. They said, okay, Hasbro's marketing arm, who had been marketing toys for five-plus decades, said, let's apply this same strategy to role-playing games. So Wizards of the Coast skinny down in size, uh, and, they ha- and they're backed by Hasbro's massive marketing arm, and they surround them, you know, and say, okay, here's what we're going to do. So they lock arms, and they do everything different than they've done before. Um, they do these really interesting kind of releases for stories. Every year they do a campaign. They have slow releases. Too much of to people, older older players chagrin because they want to see Planescape and stuff return, but the, the reality is that those things didn't perform very well, despite their popularity. Um, so this has led to an interesting cha- sea change in the industry. Uh, so now Hasbro is paying social media influencers to talk and play the game. They are working with Twitch and LivePlay has brought a whole new generation of players in. Those players, mostly Gen Z players, have been playing for about five, six years since Dungeons & Dragons has been out. been playing fifth edition. And much like us, because we're all of an age where we started a long time ago took us a little bit of time after we got through D&D and d we are like, okay, what else is out there? What other RPGs can I play? Talosplanta, Palladium, Call of Cthulhu, Warhammer. The gen, these gens, This generation, Gen Z, is doing the same thing now. They've played DD for five years. They've done practically everything they can do with it. They can play online with their friends at any time. They can do drop-in games through Adventurers League. They've been enabled to do all these crazy things anytime, anywhere they want. But now they're saying, like any curious uh, consumer would be, is like, what else is out there so now tier two games call of cthulhu warhammer games produced by um modiphius star trek as an example are enjoying their heyday you can see these mid-tier companies gobbling up ip because right now is the time to start delivering games that offer something different than DD. and this is where zwiehander comes into play and why i feel you know anecdotally uh, why it's kind of enjoyed the, the the rapid success it has in the past six years, five years, rather. Um, but um, it's an interesting time to enter because the market is not showing any signs of, of bursting anytime soon. And and this can be attributed to a number of factors. I mean, if you look, like there's a luxury d game stuff now which sells. Beetle and Grimms is an example, which is done by Matthew Lillard, the guy from LLC Punk. Um, he's got like a, he's got a luxury line of DD stuff and people buy it. So... <laughs> There's a market, not only just for Gen Z players, but for older players who are returning back to D anD D and teaching their kids. And it's not something that we do in the shadows of our basement any longer. It's happening in libraries. It's happening at bars like Pond and Pint down the road. Yeah. It's happening out in the open, and people are no longer afraid to talk about their nerdy subcultures. Well, stuff. they're
0: showcasing it on you know in in media now. I mean, I'll yeah. just reference Stranger Things. I mean, that to me, when Stranger Things came out, it, it and I know that was what three years ago when the first mm-hmm. season came out, but it seemed like from you know, one night to the next night, suddenly D and D was was fashionable That's because right. of that show. And I don't think that was the case. I think it was mm-hmm. building for a while. Yeah. But it was just kind of interesting to me to see that shift. And um, so yeah, I mean we, we talked a little bit about that sort of being the, the lifestyle brand. I think Derek and I actually had a conversation about it and said lifestyle brand sometimes is used as a pejorative to refer to mainstream. Like yep. people say, Okay, we're in a main, you know, something has gone mainstream or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, because it said, you know, I noticed, or you mentioned that you felt like it was kind of contributing somewhat to the broadening of the fan base or, mm-hmm. the, or the player base. Yes. So do you think that more people are playing because there are d t-shirts and coffee mugs and that type of thing? Or is it just, hey, I've got that shirt and I'm cool and I'm kind of in the zeitgeist a little bit? I think it's a little bit of both. Okay.
1: Um, I, mean, I, would, I don't think there's a silver bullet answer to any of this. I feel it's a number of contributing factors. I'd say the largest factor is, is live play. Critical Role in being able to play on Twitch, as an example, on YouTube, is like, that's been a game changer. Because now, people who don't have friends who play D&D, they can just hop online and play. We didn't have that opportunity when we were kids. No. It's incredible. And it's, it's not to denigrate that, because it's it's I don't play online, but I also recognize and respect the fact that people do. And it's super cool. So, now you have companies like Roll20, which was born in Overland Park, Kansas. It's now out in Reno. Um, you know, they developed the first premiere... Um, online platform for playing D anD D and other RPGs. You know, we've got a contract agreement with them to work on Zwyander. So, like, there's all these crazy things going on, including lifestyle branding, um, which has certainly gone mainstream. I mean, right. another thing I feel too that's attracted another another totally different audience is the fact that D anD D has embraced inclusivity. In fact, Jeremy Crawford, I believe is his name, is one of the lead developers uh, on D anD D, and he had they have made an active decision. To ensure that the work moving forward includes L B G T Q plus people within it. And they prop it up. And it has brought out like a number of people uh, who, you know, have been have, have through a lot of challenges that we just simply haven't. But when you compare it against nerd culture, like I think to some degree RPGs and this is beginning a little bit poetic, but RPGs are a way for us to, to it's a form of catharsis. Yeah. It's a way for us to kind of channel some of the frustrations we have. Particularly, you know, I was, I was a giant nerd when I was a kid. Like, I didn't have friend, a lot of friends. I was not the popular kid at all. Um, you know, and D&D was a way for me to kind of, like, kind of find catharsis and find friendship and build all these cool tools and things like that. And I feel that that's a, a large part of the reason why it's attracting a large LGBTQ plus um, audience now, particularly not just D&D, but all RPGs. So it's 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 got this this broad new audience across Gen Z, you know. It's bringing people back who are older back to D and D, and they're playing with their kids. I mean, some people our age have kids who are in their teens, yeah. right?
0: And they get to play D and D with their kids. It's incredible. Well, I was going to say, i to kind of go back to that for a second. I, it's interesting because growing up, when I was playing Dungeons and Dragons and Talislanta mm-hmm. and Warhammer Fantasy and these games, Shadowrun was another one that was yep. really popular, and Call of Cthulhu. Um, it was almost as if, because it wasn't mainstream, it was almost as if those of us who played, we were kind of in the know, yeah. and we had the secret handshakes, and we had the inside jokes, yeah. and we kind of could refer to things in that way. And so I, I can actually see the appeal, I guess, from an, an LGBTQ kind of perspective, because it's been – because they've had to be you know, kind of in the closet, if you will, to use a bad phrase there. but you know what I'm saying, in, kind of in hiding – but they've been able to kind of wink and nod to each other and say, "I know you're part of this. I know you're part of this." And now that it's more open gaming, right? It yeah. does give them a vehicle for that catharsis. I appreciate what you're saying with that. Hundred percent. I mean, I think that that is a it's a very interesting insight. But do you think that if the games become too mainstream, that it might lose a little bit of that arcane kind of?
1: That's a great question. Um, so in 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 okay. So there. This is a little bit cast back about seven years but there's this kind of movement within RPGs called the OSR old school role playing and a lot of these OSR games are kind of like a callback to older D&D it's basically like people saying D&D is too popular I'm going to make my own thing go back to its roots and, and, it, and in fact some people consider this 100 to be OSR oh. in fact I was called I think what was I called the other day like the the king of SjWs of OSR or some shit like that and I, and I never and I, I never called 200 OSR they called OSR right you know but, but essentially it's kind of a callback to older games and I feel that you know that movement it, it, can, it continues to grow. in fact if you look at the Enies this year uh, for two, 2019 the vast majority of games that were nominated are, are OSR or OSR adjacent games. Um, I feel that there is some lashback going on against d and it is only a matter of time until these people who are curious, you know, from five years of playing D&D, say what else is out there, until it's, it's happening. I mean, it's happening now, but it's going to happen in waves. And that's why these mid-tier, tier two RPGs are enjoying some interesting successes in the past year, year and a half. Um, I do feel that that will continue to happen. I do feel that D&D... It certainly is mainstream. I mean, Stephen Colbert is playing it with Matthew Mercer. You know, I just read in Bloomberg, I think it was Bloomberg Business yesterday, about five hundred dollar uh, game sessions that people are running. It's incredible people can monetize their hobby, right? Can you imagine like being a sixteen year old kid and be able to, like go down to the library and say, "Guys, give me twenty five bucks an hour to play, to run a game for you." I mean, that's what people are doing right now through Patreon, through Twitch. People are paying, going through a paywall to watch people play games, and they have that opportunity. And 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 you know. We are looking at ways we can expand into that area too as Um We did a contract with uh, Encounter Roleplay at the beginning of the year. They ran Yonder for eighteen game sessions, and our 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 demographics changed completely because Encounter Roleplay and Twitch attracts a much younger audience who is of a mixed demographic, which is fantastic. And we're going to continue doing those sort of things because ultimately the challenge that any publisher is going to face, and this is just this is one on one, is like if you're trying to market a product meet your audience where they're at. And it sounds a little bit mercenary, um, but it is the truth. You know, like I I have a deep passion for Zvaihender and the things that I've written, the things that I've produced and work with my team to make. But I also understand that you you can't just do things for passion. You must also find a way to monetize that. Sure. And now there's all these different ways you can monetize your hobby as a game master or player. And we're looking at ways we can approach these audiences who are curious and looking for other RPGs. And I feel is going
0: to be one of those... One of those things that yeah. kind of leads away on that a little bit. Yeah, you were talking. We were talking a little bit about that that sort of voyeurism that people have watching people play games. Yeah, I can tell you personally one of one of the most fascinating shows that I watched for a while was the tabletop game with Will Wheaton I mm-hmm. loved, or his show, where you just play board games with people and that whole experience. And of course, there was a little bit of the celebrity side to it. And everything yeah, was, but ultimately, it was just really funny or interesting to me to see people who you know are kind of. "Quote unquote cool," and yeah. playing games that I play, you know, with my son or play with my, you know, fiance or whatever. And it was kind of, but what is it? Is it the show "Roll for Crit"? Is that the, is that one of the shows? There's a there's a uh, there's a show that's a, a Twitch show that is all about D and D play. Critical role. Critical role. a yeah. so Roll for Crits, another one. But anyway, <laughs> anyway you, can, you can scrub that out, right? Can you take that out in post? Um, so, what a critical role, right? Uh-huh. They they talk and they play games, right? Yeah. I have not watched it in all in all candor, but you want to talk a little bit about the opportunities there for uh, what you could see as
1: yeah you know, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So I, I let me set this up. So when I first started talking to the people who the playtesters of workers Y Like, keep in mind these are some of these are my closest friends. So one of them is a sysadmin. He runs like a professional wrestling uh, organization out of Kansas City. One is a VP. bank of america like these are people like big boy jobs like not afraid to get in front of executives i mean i've spent my entire career in front of executives so when i my first pitched like hey can we put a camera at the end of our game table to record our game sessions there was this kind of like like everybody cringed instantly and 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 it was a big ask to get them to come around i was like well here's what we're trying to do we want to raise more awareness for his We want to invite people to our game table they're like we do not like other people, like our wives or husbands watching us game. Like we like to be in our basement and not really show people kind of what we're doing. Like, and, and it was a scary prospect. And, and frankly, the first five sessions, it was a little weird. But we eventually got used to it. And we came around to the idea of like, yeah, this all makes sense. So when we talk about critical role. Uh, I remember talking to my mom about this. And she was like, people watch you get, play games? I'm like, yeah, you watch football and baseball on TV other people are playing games why, why is play, people playing role playing games not appealing she's like oh I can understand that so cut to almost a year later since we've been recording we're about I think about 80 episodes in we're about 60 episodes into our current campaign 20 episodes into a previous campaign and a handful other oh, false starts <laughs> um, and uh, we know that people want to see this in fact, uh, two of the playtesters, uh, a guy named Adam Rose and Mike Bossler, who both were rules developers and lead playtesters on Zwyander, set up a Patreon, like to see if people are interested in watching, because we put it behind a paywall, give me like 200 bucks a month to watch us play. I mean, wow. I know, it's crazy. And there are other podcasts and Patreons that are doing this like exponentially larger. So now you talk about Critical Role, and they're making a ton of money from sponsorships in and Dungeons and & Dragons, because they're, one, they're all... Actors playing a semi scripted game, Um, but more importantly, their recognizable talent is like people ask, like, say, you know, Matt Mercer? Like, everybody knows who Matt Mercer is. He's like the world's most famous professional dungeon master. Like, so there's clearly room, you know, there for other RPGs to do this. And in fact, other tier two and tier one games are trying to do the same thing. With Voyager, we're actually talking to Encounter Roleplay about doing a live play show, like with cameras in a studio and doing this for real. So, uh, we're still in the middle of negotiating that contract, but that's something we see coming in the near future. We're going to continue recording our games around our game table. I'm going to continue recording as many games as I possibly can with my new meeting owl camera because <laughs> I do like that yeah me. yeah people people love to watch people play games because or listen to them play games at work like we, we listen to podcasts all the time at work you know like you listen to podcasts and you do your work same thing for like live play people want to listen to it watch it it's a form of entertainment and and it's it's the way that role-playing games must go and this is the important reason why uh, and this is why I was going to come around to talking about gen Z yeah is that people who've been playing Dungeons and Dragons, have an expectation now. Have an expectation of having a similar experience as Dungeons and Dragons. Now, any tier two company, Swayhund, Warhammer Fantasy Role Play, Call of Cthulhu, whatever, they don't have to compete against D and D. They have to compete with one another. You're never going to get D and D's market share. Sorry, it's not going to happen. Um, but we know that people who play role playing games are not loyal just to one game but to many games. And these people who are looking for other experiences will look for experiences that are not so dissimilar to the one that they experienced at D&D, meaning, can I play online? Can I watch people playing it? And does it have tools for you to play people across the world? An RPG publisher that does not have those tools at the ready will lose. Hands down, they'll lose. If they're not up to speed, it's not going to happen. Zweihunder through Andrews and Universal is going to do that we recognize and understand that we must meet our audiences where they're at and accommodate them in ways that they're already accustomed to because it's the only way you will draw those people over because if you don't do it somebody else is going to, right?
0: Well, it's it's like it's similar to the way boutique hotels work or maybe even craft beers mm-hmm. in a way. I mean, you're not you know Casey Beer Company is not going to pull market share from Miller Lite, no. or from Budweiser, Anheuser Busch, whatever. In Bev, they're not going to do that. They're going to be people who are going to continue to drink Bud Light at their picnics, and that's that. That's right, right. But they're competing with all the other local craft beers trying to get, and they offer something different, or they offer a different thing, or they connect with their the customer base, or they you know have something that triggers them. So I think that's what you're saying essentially is you're going to be able to offer something different with this that people are going to be looking for. The cleanser palette of the sort of, and I'm not going to call Dungeons & Dragons generic, but that sort of mass marketed thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and I still have to say that, and I have to disparage D&D because I no, love D&D, yeah. but D&D is Bud Light.
0: It <laughs> is. Yeah,
1: Everybody drinks it. Everybody plays D&D. It's what you do when you're you're at a picnic. Like somebody's got beer. It's probably going to be some shitty yard beer. That's your expectation. Your expectation is when you play role playing games, the first thing that you look for is like who's playing D anD D. That's the game that people know. But now people are looking for bespoke experiences. Like yeah. in 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 the way to win in the industry and not win, not necessarily taking market share from other RPGs, but being able to pay your bills, pay your people, grow your team, and so such is going to be offering an experience. Similar to D anD D, but with its own bespoke experiences. Like what, what is Zwynder doing different than Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay? What is Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay doing different than Call of Cthulhu? And and even though that we're not necessarily saying that people who are playing D anD D will adhere, will be loyal to just one game, um, we want them to. You want you certainly want to play all games because I'm I'm of the opinion that when the when the tides rise, all ships rise. Like. I don't, you know, the, the t- tabletop role playing game industry is so damn small. It's smaller than you realize, even though it's back, despite the fact that it $200 million a sure, year. Sure. Um, you know, a lot of publishers are working with one another to create things. Uh, there really isn't a sense of competitiveness that I've seen yet between them. I think that people online, on web forums, want to kind of bear that standard and say, like, you know, my game's better than yours because that's how people are. But the reality is behind the curtain, Publishers are not like that at all. Like, as an example, like, I created Zvoyhander, and then six months later, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 4th edition comes out. The guy, one of the leads on it, is a guy named T.S. Lucard, who I'm a massive fan of. The guy wrote, like, Warhammer Fantasy Role, or Warhammer 40K, Dark Heresy, a bunch of yeah. other stuff. Like, I was really afraid to go up to him at Gen Con, because I, j- I just won Best Game Product of the Year. I was wearing the medals, of course, the next day. And I'm walking around in the convention, I'm like, should I go talk to Cubicle 7? Like, what do you think they'd say with like, my buddy Adam? And he's like, sure, why not? What are they gonna do? Just not shake your hand? So I walk up and he the first thing he does, he literally grabs my hand and shakes it and says, Dude, congratulations on the we hander. Like, and I didn't even know he knew me. Like, I knew who he was. <laughs> you know, and, and it was this weird moment where I'm like one meeting one of my one of my favorite authors, who had, you know, I've been I've been buying his books for years. And and I'm like, holy shit, like and so we have this conversation for about a half hour about Perceived rivalry and competitiveness and stuff. And it really opened my eyes to like what the industry is really like. And as I've gotten to know more publishers and creators in this space, um, and distributors for that matter, like Indie Press Revolution, it's become very evident and clear to me that like the RPG publishing industry within itself is not battling with one another. We're not embattled. And that's an important thing to remember, particularly as people are web-formed, you know, do or they can to drum up drama. Because people... Love fucking drama. Sure. Uh, can I say that? On? Yeah, yeah. Cool. All right. I speak French. So, um, <laughs> hope you do too. Uh, but yeah. fucking French is great, man. All right. <laughs> but yeah, the reality is, is that you know people perceive this like rivalry between Zweihander and Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. There's absolutely not. They both do two entirely separate things, and you can do both. Most right. people do. People who like Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay come to Zweihander, People who like
0: Zvaiender. Yeah, it's not designed to be a replacement. It's That's right. That's right. If anything, I mean, it's a complement to mm-hmm. perhaps. Um, That's right. You know, and it's a different type of thing. I'm, I'm again. I'm just really intrigued to dig into this deeply. Yeah. Dig deep, deep, deep into the book. As well. uh, I'll give
1: you another example. So, you know, I was same Gen Con, 2018. Um, R. Tal's Lauren,
0: who produces
1: Cyberpunk and The Witcher. They just, The Witcher book just came out, and people have been using Zweihanger for The Witcher at that point. Like, there's like this huge like. 25-page homebrew document on Google Drive about how to convert the Witcher into y Y-hander. The their their main sales guy, like I'm chatting with him. He's like, dude, I backed your Kickstarter. He's <laughs> like, he's like, this is so cool. By the way, here, have a Witcher book. Did you buy one yet? I'm like, all right, Bob. He's like, no, take another one. Give it to your friend. So you know, like, there's no sense of competitiveness between us. Like, uh-huh. it's it's a really interesting, unique industry. It's a cottage industry, you know. Um, but uh, nonetheless, it's uh, you know, to to your original point about. How do we capture our audience and how do we bring them around beyond D&D to something else? I mean, it's as the tide rises, all ships rise. Yeah. Uh, people are going to navigate naturally to an experience that will be complementary to their D&D experience, but that's something different.
0: Cool. That's excellent. I wanted to get one thought and then we'll kind of wrap up here, I think, because we I don't know what we're doing on time. I'm just going to check I'm out fine on you. time. Yeah, we're good works. on time, but we got to try to get this wrapped up and get out of your way a little bit. Uh, so here's my first question, and this, this is before we get into kind of the end. You made a comment about the mid tier being kind of the bottom of that sandwich, and the and the mm-hmm. collectible card games being at the top. Yeah. I'm curious, just pure vanity, mm-hmm. what your thoughts are on things like KeyForge and what Garfield did with Magic and, and these type of things. I mean, what, what's your thought on those collectible card games? I mean, truly, KeyForge was an interesting yeah. experiment. Okay? Yeah. And apparently, Fantasy Flight's figured out a way to turn that into a cash cow, as these all, right. as these all are. Right. I mean, Star Wars Destiny, all these different mm-hmm. card games hybrid card games whatever but what's your thoughts about that I mean from from a game designer yeah. from a publisher perspective what's your thoughts so I will disclose first and
1: foremost I don't play KeyForge, I don't play Magic I don't own any collectible card games the last game collectible card game I played was Spellfire I think <laughs> okay. right in like the late 90s so my experience with Magic the Gathering and other games like that is very real limited but from an outsider's perspective uh, the collectible card games are clearly the king why? Because they, they are built specifically around snackable, digestible experiences. And what I mean by that is like I can walk into a game store, I can walk into a bar with a pack of cards in my back pocket and say, hey, you want play some games? Just in the same way that you would play poker or something like that. But the difference is, is that everybody has their own unique decks. So I feel that that's kind of a... It's, it's kind of an evolution of, like, backgammon or the games that our grandparents pay when they're, kid, you know, they're younger with their with their friends. Like, the backgammon tournament in the living room every Thursday. like Instead, now you can just go anywhere with a pack of cars in your back pocket and go where you want. So clickable car games are intriguing in that sense. What does that mean for Zwinder? I don't know. I'm um, just curious. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it's an interesting concept. Right. It's not my cup of tea, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's not something that would... But ever be something we wouldn't potentially explore. Sure.
0: So speaking of that, now you've moved into, you, you parlayed the Kickstarter, you parlayed that into your uh, creative director for games for AMU. That's right. Let's talk about that and talk a little bit about, you know, well, at least anything you can share about kind of yeah. the future of where this is going. And um, and I'll tell you offhand, you know, the reason that we got to this point, you and I, with this conversation was, you know, I met you at the store mm-hmm. and I was just intrigued that Kansas City has this sort of in-our-backyard
2: Movement for this, right?
0: Yep. There's a there's an actual thirst for it. There's a hunger for gaming in this town, and this organization, AMU, is trying to you know make that happen. um And you're leading the way with that. So fill us in on it. Tell us about it. Yeah.
1: So um as I mentioned earlier, I'd spent you know 15, 16 years in advertising, and um it was around I think the latter part of 2017. I want to say. Uh, my father-in-law was like, hey, you know, there's a local publishing company. I'm friends with, with one of the board members. You should really talk to them about your next Kickstarter. Because at this time, I was working on the Mongosh Kickstarter. I was going to do a new revised edition of Zwyander. I was going to do Mongosh, a compliment to the book. And I was just kind of blew it off. I was like, oh, whatever. You know, I'm doing my own thing. I'm, I'm just going to do what I'm doing, you know, but like uh, foolishly. Uh, so time turns. And the beginning of 2018, and I finally get in front of of and you know, Universal. Uh, in front of their more board members and with their key editors. The key editor, uh, Patty Rice, um, is also, the, is also the, the editor for Matthew Inman's The Oatmeal, uh, the guy who does Exploding Kittens. So we have this conversation about Zvoyander. I'm like, and they're like, so tell us about Zvoyander, but also tell us about RPGs in the same way we're having a conversation now. And I'm like, well, here's, let me give you a, the 50,000 foot view, 30,000 foot view, and I will dive down to the details as we go along. So I tell them, like, here's what the industry looks like. Here's what I've done. Here's where I think we could go. And they're like, okay. We want you. We want to publish your books. So I'm like, cool. You're gonna be my publisher. Awesome. So I sign the ro- sign the contract get a royalty in advance. And I'm like, hell yeah! I'm like this is awesome. <laughs> and over time, you know, I get kind of passed around internally over the next three months between all of the executives within uh, Andrew Meal, C- Andy Sarian, who's the CEO, um, comes from Hollywood background. Um, Fred, who also comes from Hollywood, Kirsty Melville, who's the president of publishing. And it, they kind of decide like, hey, we should not just publish RPGs. We should just publish Slyhnder and Mongosh and others, but we should actually do RPGs ourselves. So we have this series of long conversations around what would this look like? What would, what would me as an executive creative director, of games own within the organization? What would I lead? How large would the team be? Where do we start? What do we want to end? What would we consider success? All these questions that you ask when you look at, like, moving into a new business and eventually blossom into an offer. So I remember I had this conversation with my wife. I said, so, Allison, my wife's name Allie, uh, you know, with a three-year-old kid. I'm like, so, I've you know, I spent this many, I've spent so many years in advertising. And, and she knows I've been doing this, like, when the sun sets. Anybody who's publishing RPGs and working a full-time job and juggling a family and friends, it's you never sleep. So I was like, you know, I, I, think, I think I should do this, but let's talk about the pros and cons. So we go through all that, and then we kind of decide, like, yeah, this is going to be good for our family, uh, good for your sanity. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I can focus on one thing, because, you know, as a, as a serial entrepreneur, like, this is not my first go-around. You know, this is my first go-around of publishing, but not my first business. I've had two of the very successful businesses that I've sold off. So I knew that, like, there was something here, and I knew that if I wanted to make this a reality to really make sure that Angelic Meal was successful, I would need to work with them as an associate to ensure that it it succeeds. So they made an offer, and I accepted it, and... (laughs) Here you are. It's right. I'm 65 days in as of today on Wednesday. Uh, and it's been fantastic and you know AMU uh, Anderson Media Universal for short you know their publishing arm they understand books they understand the publishing world they understand how to produce how to print how to ship how to work through distribution channels how to get through to Amazon Barnes & Noble Target Walmart Books a Million Indigo in Canada Simon & Schuster you name it that's their network they've been around for four plus decades I believe that since the 70s when they were founded um But they understand the book world. So the idea of role-playing games being literally a book, it's not a board game, it's not a bunch of figures necessary to play, it's just a book and some dice and pencils and friends. Like they're like, we can understand this, so we should do this because there isn't like a high cost associated with it. And what they're looking at is how successful is Volley Hunter and other RPGs that we can acquire may be and which will lead into accessories potentially. Um, you know, looking at Cards and looking at figures and things like that. Those are all. Those are all certainly. If I look at my crystal ball, those things are potentially a reality. But right now, my charge, my 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 mandate is to make Zvihunder and its other games successful, including Mangosh, a supplement to the player's handbook that's coming out in December, and a starter set that's coming out next year. So we're kind of driving toward like you know like it's, it's not, I wouldn't call it a grand experiment. But it's about like how successful can we be with this, and that will lead to other things. Will right. we acquire the RPGs? Will we broaden our network? Will we grow the team? Um, and that that's kind of like what I've been doing over the past sixty plus days is defining that vision alongside uh Kirsty Melville, who's the president of publishing. She has a background on board games from some number of years ago, but she understands the publishing world. She's a wonder kid. I mean, she's an incredibly talented person. Um, who's had a lot of experience in publishing and you know as, and, and one of the big things for me coming to AMU is that because I worked in an executive role before I wanted somebody that I could learn from who could mentor me um, and Kirsty is that person she has a wealth of knowledge and experience and you know with, with her experience AMU's kind of publishing power and understanding among all the associates and creators beneath these roof, beneath this roof um, that we can make Zweihander and other RPGs through AMU very successful I have no doubt about
0: that that's awesome alright well hey good luck with that yeah, I appreciate that really appreciate the time today and I know the listeners will enjoy this this conversation um, I'd like to just leave it open and say hey we'll check in with you from time to time yeah. and do some more of these if it's possible you can give us a little more insight on where things are going and uh, opportunity to plug the product so now's your chance so go for <laughs> it you can plug this in and Mongosh and everything else so do that yeah, so so
1: thank you both <laughs> obviously for, for setting this up um, like I said before, this is this is all still very fresh and new to me. Um, so having the opportunity to connect with people who are out there have audiences already built in, who are already talking about RPGs is an incredible experience. So, so, so Derek and John, thank you for that. I appreciate it. Um, you know, Zweihander, is a, it's a it's a passion project. It was for a long time, and now it's like a business thing for me. Um, but I haven't lost my passion by any means. In fact, you know, I still have to write. I still have to create. Like that hasn't gone away. As an executive creative director, and although my ch- charge is helping drive the vision, it's also about creation, working with our freelancers through Groom Parallel Studios, who's the company of, you know, play testers and artists and creators who all made Swaihunder amazing, from Dan Mandich to Ken Duquette, who's our new art director, to uh, Sierra Stanton, who works here at AMU, to our publicist, Allison McNaughton, um, to, you know, the uh, Dan, Milena, Tanner, Adam, Mike, everybody who's kind of contributed to this, this, this amazing book. And um, I'd be remiss not to thank them for their time on this, on this podcast. But um, nonetheless, like I would say, you know, kind of wrap up like if you're looking for some, a different experience that is unlike D&D, uh, that is not high fantasy, but what we call Grim and perilous role play. It's not dark fantasy. It's somewhere in between. Uh, we all have features people, you around the table wearing the trappings and clothing of characters, not the characters on paper in the world, but seeing yourself in, the, in, this, in these roles, you should try Zwyander. Um I know you can get it at your local game stores right now. You can buy it on target.com, walmart.com. You can buy it at Barnes & Noble in store. In fact, I've signed a bunch of copies out in the wild. You can buy it at Tabletop locally. Uh, you can buy it on Amazon for like 40 bucks, like $37 right now. I think the retail is on 65 um, but it's chock-a-block full of illustrations. Dan Mandich illustrated 425 illustrations cover to cover. Only him, one artist. Mm-hmm. So it has continuity within it. And it reflects his life's work not only just with illustration, but also as far as Wyandr. it continues to improve their new book, Mongosh. But Wyandr is a very different experience. You've probably had before at the game table. It uses D100, so percentile dice. It's very easy to understand your chance for success and failure. It offers a lot of intriguing opportunities beyond combat. I like. Oftentimes, we like to feature, you know, social intrigue mechanics and chase scenes, which are oftentimes un- overlooked by RPGs, as well as like what wilderness travel looks like from point to point, like the the, the Lord of the Rings, you know, Fellowship of the Ring, like across the world to Mordor. Um, we have those mechanics built into the game, and I think you'll find uh, that Spy Hunter is an interesting and intriguing surprise compared to what you're seeing on the market today. Very good. Thank you so much for the time. Appreciate yeah, yeah. it so Forget much.
0: Appreciate it. Thanks Take, again, John. Yeah, Derek, thank you so much. Really yeah, thank you.
2: Check. Cheers. All right, so that was Daniel Fox and John Hall talking about the Zweihander tabletop RPG Dark Grim Fantasy. I uh, hope you enjoyed the interview. I hope it was a good conversation. If you have any questions, of course, you can follow Daniel Fox out on Twitter. He provided his handle there. And you can find John Hall actually in Flying Killer Robots. They do the music for most of our shows here on the Heroes Podcast Network. And as always, you can find Gamer Heroes at Gamer Heroes Pod on Twitter. And you can find the rest of the shows at Heroes Podcasts on Facebook, Heroespodcasts.com for the Heroes Podcast Network. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Spreaker, Google Play, you name it. And don't forget to follow our regular hosts at GGKC, GG underscore Kansas underscore City on Twitter. So thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time.